Okay. Can you hear me back there? Everybody hear me? Apparently. <laughs> All right, here we are in uh, our fourth lesson in a series of ten. We're going to do ten lessons, so that'll take us uh, right up to almost to Thanksgiving. And we're studying the book of Romans, as you know. And one of the key themes, and by the way, I wanted to announce, uh, I mentioned before that I'm taking a group to Israel next, next year, and if anybody's interested, I put some brochures back at the table back there where you pay, so you can pick that up if you, if you wanted any information, any more information about it. Uh, today, in today's lesson in Romans chapter 3, so if you have your Bible, you can open up to Romans 3, uh, the, one of the key issues there is substitution, and Christ was our substitute. So substitution, and in today's movie clip, Bette Midler is the substitute on the softball team. Let's see how that goes. They caught him, by the way. <laughs> All right, Romans chapter 3. Um, for the last three weeks, we've been, Paul in, in book of Romans chapter 1 and 2, in the beginning of 3, he's beat us down. He, his whole purpose was to show how everyone needs the righteousness of God. Everybody needs Jesus Christ. So it begins in chapter 1 with the pagan idol worshipers and, and showed how all these world religions, all these people around the world that have all these idols, they've suppressed the truth, refused to believe in the, in the truth that God gave them inherently in their soul. And in looking at the creation, they turned away from God and they went their own way and created their own religions and their own idols. And then naturally, he turns in chapter 2, okay, who else then? So in that chapter 2, he turns to the good people, the moral people. You know, they're those people, and, and I've had people come up all the time and say, you know, this Christian thing, he's, I know a lot, I have a lot of friends that are really good moral people, much better than any Christian I know. Uh, and that may be true, actually. I'm not denying that. But in chapter 2, Paul shows how no matter how good someone appears to be or how moral they claim to be, they also fall short of God's standard of judgment. And they also will be given the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And they, so they also need Jesus. And then the third type of person he begins to look at in... Uh, chapter 2, verse 17, which is the super-religious. What about that person who's been religious all their life, been brought up in a, in a church, and, and has done everything ever asked of them? He's the, like the, the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, right? I've always been here, and I've always obeyed, and I've always, you know, that guy, the super-religious guy that thinks of himself, you know, I've done everything, I've obeyed every rule, I've straight as an arrow, what about that guy? And in the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, Paul proves that guy also. He also makes all these rules, but he breaks them in, at the very least in his heart, if not in every way. And so he also, and, and Paul's Jewish, and so he knows a bunch of these really orthodox, super-religious guys, and so he says they also fall short. They also need Jesus as a Savior. And so, really, 
it's everyone, and that's why, because everyone needs Jesus. That's why in 3.9, if you look there at chapter 3, verse 9, he can say, what then? Are we better than they? Is anybody better than anybody else in God's eyes? And not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So granted, some people are better than others, but in God's view, as far as living up to God's standard, all are under sin. All need their sins atoned for. So he says, he quotes Old Testament scripture, there's none righteous, not even one, there's none who understand, there's none who seeks God, and he goes on and on and on. There's nobody, so therefore the conclusion obviously that he's making is everyone needs Christ. Everyone. And now in today's lesson in verse 21, there's two words that it starts off with. Look at verse 21. Two wonderful, awesome words for us. Because whenever there's a problem, whenever there's an unsolvable problem, these two words are awesome. And what are they? But now. So it looked like we were done for. We looked like there was no hope. He, Paul proved that everybody, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What are we to do? Well, here it is, verse 21. But now. God has done something. And but now reverses the previous problem. We all got this problem, but now God has done something to solve it. But now, it's a, a phrase there to contrast the difference in our state of being before and after Christ. So before Christ, we had this problem that he went over in chapter 1 through 3. But now, in Christ, the problem is solved. We have turned the corner, and in our life there is a change. There is a, a change in our standing before God. God looks at us differently now. And even judicially, as if we were standing before God as a judge, and we will someday, God sees our sins as being paid for and sees us as righteous. We have his righteousness that he's given through Christ, but now. And that's a familiar phrase throughout the New Testament. The author's New Testament, it's, it's, you'll find it in every book. I'll just give you a sampling. Ephesians 2.11 but now you were far away, but now you have been brought near. Ephesians 5.8, you were in darkness, but now you are in the light. Colossians 1, you were alienated from God, but now he has reconciled you. 1 Peter 2, once you were not a people of God, but now through Christ you are. You were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned. And then in the next few lessons, Romans 6, Paul says, uh, you used to be slaves to sin, but now you have been set free. The gospel was hidden from you, but now it is revealed. Uh, Galatians 4, you did not know God, but now you know him. And I could go on and on in Philippians. Every book, that's kind of a, a, a theme throughout the whole New Testament. Now, even though the but now is true of you and I, we may not feel different at conversion, but these verses, this passage we're going to look at expresses how God feels. So you may not feel different 
when, when Christ comes into your life initially. I think years later, of course, you'll recognize the change in your life. But initially, you may not feel it. But this tells you how God feels. Once Christ comes into your life, once you believe in Jesus, God sees a change. God feels that things have changed, all right? And we have been converted in the eyes of God. And so how does he feel about us? He, he sees us as having atoned for our sins, having come to the Savior that he provided. By faith, we've received his provision for our sin. And how important is that? <laughs> Obviously, it's the greatest decision anybody has, could ever make. Uh, Pascal, you know, great theologian, said it well. He said, grace is needed to turn a man into a saint. And he who doubts that does not know what a saint or a man is. Isn't that great? All those people that say, you know, I don't need Jesus. I can, you know, do this and keep this law and I'm this and that. I've got my own religion. He doesn't really know the true nature of man. He's fooling himself is what Pascal's saying. So what we have here, and he's going to say that this in uh, a passage today, we have the boast-free gospel. The boast-free gospel. You know, in every other realm of humanity, whether it's business or athletics or what, what do people do? They like to talk about their accomplishments. I achieved this, I got this, I won this, I'm the best at this. That's just who we are. But when it comes to the truth about our salvation and when it comes to our religion, it's the boast-free gospel. If you're going to boast, you need to be boasting about what Christ has done, right? Because it's all the grace of God. It's not you or I. So you look at the Old Testament, you know, ancestors that everybody looks, you know, kind of looks up to as heroes like Abraham, Moses, David. If you really look at their lives, you can see it's a boast-free gospel for them too. Because those guys were far from perfect. Uh, and they needed the grace as well. Psalm 32, the psalmist says, these people who are blessed by God, they have not earned something from God. They have received something from God. <laughs> exactly. They nailed it. Okay? So let's go through the passage real quick. First of all, pick it up in verse 19, because I think this is a really important truth, because naturally the religious person, the good person, is going to say, wait a minute, you just said, Paul, that everybody breaks the law, and so why would God give the law? that everybody was going to break. If nobody could keep the law, why would God give it? For a very important reason. Because it's in our nature to be naive about our moral, ethical ability because we typically stand up and do boast. What did we need to find out? We needed to find out what God's perfect holy standard is. And knowing what it is, say the Ten Commandments, then we find ourselves breaking it. Look at what he says, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And those who have the law, in other words, the, the Jews in this case, or us, we have it. And what happens when we've got that law? You've got the Ten Commandments. It's been taught to you. You know what it is. So what is your relationship to it? Look at this. That every mouth may be closed. 
you know, shut my mouth. There is no room for boasting. I can't say a word because I've broken every one of those babies, right? The very idea of standing up and saying, I keep the Ten Commandments, no, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So in having this law, knowing his standard and breaking it, we have become accountable. We're held accountable is what he's saying. And we also realize who we are when we have God's standard and we break it. So he goes on to say, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No people can keep it perfectly. And here it is, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Do you ever think that way? Because we've been given the law that we break, now we know we're sinners. Nobody can deny it. Without it, we're naive. Oh, yeah, I'm doing great. Oh, yeah, everything's cool. You know, I've been taught the power of positive thinking. You know? I'm Jason Garrett. We played really good. Oh, we fought too hard to the end. Yes, but you were beaten again. Somebody tell this guy. <laughs> All right, so through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So now we know that we need help. Now we know we need a Savior because we've got God's holy standard that we can see, that we can read. It's in black and white. How can anybody deny it? And here it is, verse 21, the transition. All that's true, but now, apart from the law, without the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, manifested. To us, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it was predicted by the prophets. It's there in the Old Testament. Verse 22, what kind of righteousness? How did we get this righteousness? Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, so it's that perfect holy standard, and we get it through faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So whoever believes, doesn't have to be one race of people or one group or uh, one place in the world. Everybody, all people, without distinction, who believe in Jesus as their Savior are saved. And they receive it by faith. For, again, kind of repeating in verse 23, why do they need it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody's left out of that. Nobody has escaped through that and said, I'm good enough. This is the boast-free gospel. So verse 24, what continues to be true? Verse 24, being justified. We are justified before God. And, and how? By a gift. God has grace. This is the grace of God. God's grace, justified as a gift by his grace through, what's the work? The atoning work, the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus did the work on the cross, and we've received it by faith, and it's God's grace. And talking about Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, so God put him up there for all to see on the cross, 
as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And so that propitiation, that's a cool word, isn't it? Anybody know what that means? <laughs> it's a theological term. It means, it means appeasement. God's appeased. God is rightfully angry at sin, but the blood of Christ has appeased him. Now, he's happy with it. He was angry about sin. He loved people, hated sin. But now, we're reconciled, propitiated in his blood through faith. And this, God did this to demonstrate God's own righteousness because in the forbearance of God, so what does forbearance mean? Patience. A lot of people ask, and, and you probably wondered, and I know people are going to ask you sooner or later, well, okay, Christ, when did Christ die? Oh, about 30 A.D. Okay, well, what about all those guys in the Old Testament? How were they saved? If you weren't saved until you had Christ as your Savior, that didn't happen until 30 A.D. What about all the people before? Or what about the people who sinned before Jesus becomes their Savior? Well, here's the answer right here. In the forbearance of God, he patiently passed over, waited through, had patience with their sin because he had foreknowledge of what he was going to do in sending Christ into the world and the, the blood that Christ shed, his work on the cross, he knew, God knew, had foreknowledge, would pay the price for all sin, past, present, and future of everybody. It, it was, had that power to do that. And God knew that. And so the Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, by the blood of Christ. But God waited, he, he passed over their sin, waiting for that perfect sacrifice. So in his forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. For the demonstration that Jesus did to bring right, righteousness of God to us, at the present time, meaning the church age, now that Christ has come. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in doing this this way, God is just. We know that God is both just and he is both loving. How in the world, since we're sinners and deserve death, how can God be just unless we die? And how can a God who loves us so much, how can he let us die? This is a dilemma. And it's only solved in the person of Christ. See? Because in Christ, his work on the cross, he can be just because the sins are paid for, but at the same time, his love is given in what Christ did. So he both shows his love, displays his love for us and his grace, and brings justice at the same time. Who else can do that? Only Christ can do that. We need both, and only he can do it. So that's what he's talking about here. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then he asks the question that I've been asking, verse 27. 
Where then is boasting? If all this is done by God, it's his plan and he carries it out, he accomplishes it, and then he gives it to us, where then is boasting? Can you really walk around and say, well, I'm a good guy, I've got it made, I'm okay, you're okay, I wrote the book. I went in the bookstore one time and said, where is the self-help section? He said, if I told you, it would defeat the purpose. <laughs> so there's the question, where then is boasting? Can you help yourself? Can you, can you do this yourself? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. There's no grounds for it. There's no basis for any of us talking about how great we are and what we've done. By what kind of law? Of works? No. Not by a law of faith. We're justified by faith, not works. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is he the God of God, the God of Jews only? No, he's not the God of Gentiles also. Yes, of Gentiles also. So for everybody. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Same God doing both. All right? Do we nullify the law? This is another important distinction. You go, oh, so actually the law is bad then. No. The law is good and perfect and holy. It's God's perfect standard. Just because we couldn't keep it doesn't make the law bad. That means we're bad. And that's what he's saying. Do we nullify the law through faith? No. May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So God has actually fixed the law in place and proven that it's good and right and holy. And he's fulfilled us, filled it in us through Christ. So now everything works. So let's go back and recap the benefits that we just went through there. Number one, God's righteousness is, is ours in Christ. Righteousness comes to us. That's absolute holiness. In God's eyes, you know what the word saint, where that comes from? Uh, all the, by the way, it's not some special person in, in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's all who believe. It's he addresses these letters. All the New Testament authors address these letters to the saints, meaning the whole church. So how can he call? Well, I mean, he would call this group here saints. So how is that possible? <laughs> right? I mean, I know you people. <laughs> it means, literally, the Greek word means holy ones. Somebody almost shouted back one to, I know you. <laughs> holy ones. It means holy ones. In God's eye, in his view, we are holy. We have his righteousness. Why? Because we have Christ. We've been declared righteous because we have Christ. So God's righteousness has been imputed to us, and our sin has been imputed to Christ. Pretty good deal. Second thing uh, we looked at in that passage was justification. We're justified. It's a judicial term. It's like standing before a judge and being declared not guilty by saying the price is paid. I saw a little uh, illustration, a story. A small town judge 
had a case come before him, an old couple who had fallen behind on their mortgage. Uh, they were guilty. They were guilty as charged. They owed $250 to the person who had the mortgage. They were guilty of non-payment. And the judge, you know, he'd been elected to do justice. And so he couldn't just set it aside. Justice had to be done. But he's looking at him going, I can't let this happen to this, these wonderful people be thrown out on the street. And so the righteous judge got up and gave the plaintiff $250 and said, paid in full. Stay in your house. So what was that? That was a transfer from the just to the unjust, and the debt was paid. And they're declared not guilty. Okay? Same thing. We've been justified before God uh, in that way. Somebody said uh, a, a politician once was having his painting made, and the politician told the guy, he said, you know, that picture does not do me justice. And the painter said, well, with a face like yours, you don't need justice, you need mercy. And that's us. That's us. We got just what we needed. We don't want justice. We want grace. We want mercy. On the next term, verse 24, is redemption. It's you know, buying something back. And his audience would really relate to that because in those days, if you were, if you were captured, and they had a lot of wars and battles, if you were captured in battle, or if you were a bond slave sold because you had a debt, they didn't have bankruptcy laws, if you were bankrupt and couldn't pay, they put you in, as a bond slave, a, a servant, forced, indentured. But you could be bought out, a relative or a friend, or you could earn enough somehow to be redeemed. And so that was a, a very valid term, especially in those days. And so what he's saying, in the same way, we were a slave or a prisoner or however you want to look at it, to sin. But Christ has redeemed us. He's paid the price and bought us out. Peter said it well, 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, money, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. That's redemption. And then verse 25, we talked about propitiation. It means appeasement. God is satisfied with the payment. He's been appeased, satisfied. And then verse 26, substitution. How did this happen? We had a substitute. Just like the judge in the story became a substitute for the old couple, we have a substitute in Christ. He has stepped up uh, and been our substitute. And you know, throughout, going all the way back to Abraham, the concept, the idea of substitution was there. Remember in uh, Genesis 22 when Abraham took Isaac out and God just to test his faith said, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son Isaac. And so he told Isaac, we're going to go up on the mountain here and we're going to make a sacrifice to God. And when they got there, what, remember what Isaac said? Hey, Dad, I don't see the sacrificial lamb or the goat. We're, we're missing something here, you know. 
And remember what Abraham said? God will provide. And what happened after God told him not to sacrifice Isaac? A goat walked out of the bush. And that was the first scapegoat. That term scapegoat, that was literally, that was the scapegoat. And when Israel uh, celebrates the Day of Atonement, they also have a scapegoat. They have two goats, and they cast lots, and one of them is sacrificed, and one of them is set free to carry the sins away. So there's always been uh, this concept of substitution uh, going all the way back. You know, and th that sets up, because there's got to be a substitute for sin, that's set up. You look at in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you have the sacrificial system with the priesthood for Israel. And that was because God knew they were going to break the Ten Commandments, which he just gave them. And then when they broke it there in, well, well what is it, Exodus uh, 20, no, Exodus 32, they then had the sacrificial system that was put in play. You know, if God, when God gave them the Ten Commandments, if they could have actually kept the Ten Commandments, that had been the end of the Bible. All right, here's the law. Uh, see that you keep it. Have a nice day. And we'd have had a real short Bible. It would have been two books, Genesis and Exodus. But what happened? They immediately broke it. So they needed a sacrificial with a continuous substitute until the ultimate substitute would come, Jesus Christ. And that's when it was finally that, that substitute and that sacrifice of infinite value was finally made. And then there was no more need for any other substitutes. So it ended the sacrificial system. Okay? So, what, and we talked about what about previous sins and, and we said that because of God's forbearance, his patience, he waited for that perfect sacrifice to be made. And so the death of Jesus was retroactive. It carried back to your previous sins. It carried back to the sins of Abraham and David and all the guys there in the Old Testament. So now, salvation, you know, the, the big picture, the salvation that, that we receive from Jesus, how are we saved through Jesus, uh, how does that, how do we get that? I mean, how, does it, how do we make that ours? It's not enough to just know that it's there, that God's done it. That's just intellectual sin. How do we make it ours? By faith. That's why he continuously in every passage says, by faith, through faith. So we make it ours, we appropriate it by faith. Very important concept. So what is faith? Let's see if we can define faith. Well, first of all, what is faith not? Faith is not a good work. Faith is not like some work that you do. You, you, you can't earn salvation, so faith is not that. So what is faith? John, Just some quotes from famous people. John Calvin said, Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's grace toward us founded on the truth. It is both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then to expect it of him. James Montgomery Boyce, 
He says, faith has three parts. Knowledge, belief, and trust. The knowledge is of the true word of God. The belief is a certainty that it's true. And the trust is also the commitment of your life to it. Pretty good one. I kind of like that one. They're all true, but that one seems to be more comprehensive. Um, well, again, it's not a work, so why would I bring that up again? It's because there's a danger that we start developing self-confidence. I got faith and they don't, so there's something special about me. You know, no, it's given by God. Uh, it's, and it's not the power of positive thinking. A lot of people think, well, you just have to think right. You, you know, it's not the power of positive thinking. Uh, what, what does the Bible actually say? What's the key passage? We saw what the theologian said. What's the best passage in the Bible defining faith? You'll find it in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Great passage. Makes it simple, very understandable. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So two different things. The conviction, first of all, the assurance of things hoped for, meaning it's a reality to you. You're sure that this is real, that this is true to you. It may not be to other people, but to you, this is a reality. Secondly, how much a reality is it? So the conviction of things not seen means that something happens. When you commit to it completely, you respond to it like the, all the Old Testament uh, people who believe. And, and in this passage, Hebrews 11, he gives you the example one after another. Noah, why else? If, if Noah wasn't, didn't believe and he wasn't convicted of it, didn't commit his life to it, why else would he build an ark in the middle of Nebraska where it never even rained before and there never had a flood? See, that's a commitment. And you go through the life of each one of those guys, you know. Isaiah, Jeremiah, I mean, they went through really traumatic experience, but they were willing to do it. They were committed. And why? Because they had the faith. It was real to them. What God's word said was real to them, and they were committed to it, and their actions proved that. So your, your belief should bring a response from you. Something should happen. So God's grace, what is that? What is our faith in? It's in God's grace. And what is that? It's God's gift, his unmerited favor to us. It's what he has done. And the, the irony, when you think about this being a gift, you think about us receiving it because God loves us, uh, men have always had a dilemma when they looked at that. And they want to know, well, how could God send sinners to hell? I mean, they don't seem, they, they say, well, he made us, and then he sends us to hell? That's crazy. So how could God send sinners to hell? Well, here's the Bible's point of view. It looks at it completely different. Because you know what human beings try to do? They try to blame everything on God. Everything's our fault. But because it's our fault, we try to blame it on him. My God would not do that, you know, like that. But you know what the Bible has a hard time understanding? The Bible takes it for granted that God, you know, is justified in sending sinners to hell. 
the Bible is amazed at, the authors of the Bible are totally amazed at, is how God can send sinners to heaven. Think about that. Sure, sinners go to hell, but how can sinners go to heaven? Well, that's the whole point of God's grace. To bring justice so that sinners can go to heaven. Out, purely out of an act of love. That's God's only motivation for doing it. So, yeah, we have the boast-free gospel. None of us can stand up and say, I deserve this. This is mine. I'm smarter than other people. So I figured this out when you didn't. It's the boast-free gospel. There are no peacocks in heaven, someone said. (laughs) Strutting around up there, you know. So in your text there, he says, where then is boasting? Well, there isn't any. It's excluded. God's plan to save people excludes that kind of pride. It's It's not about me and you. It's about him, which is amazing because where do we live anyway? Where do we live? We live in a world of self-promotion. In every other field of endeavor, it's all about promoting yourself. In your business, you know, in school, in athletics, it's all about promoting yourself. I was walking through the park, you know, they play that YMCA uh, football early in the morning, Saturday mornings, you know, I was walking through there one day. And listen to the little kids talk. You know, they're like nine years old or something. And you, you can imagine the conversations. You've had kids. You can imagine the conversation. I made two touchdowns. Well, I made three. Well, next week I'm going to make three. You know, it's like it's, it starts at a very young age, right? Self-promotion. So kids talk. What about the pro athletes? Anybody else notice their self-promotion? It's out of control, right? I mean, they're crazy, beating their chest and doing all the stuff they do. So we live in a world of self-promotion, and, and that's what a- advertising is all about, right? You watch all the advertisements on TV, we're the best, and if you get our product, it'll change your life, and we're, you know. And, of course, we put up with it because we know that it's a buyer-beware world, too. So we believe about one-tenth of what we hear. So the question is, will heaven be filled with people singing their own praises? Um, No. Remember we said last week, who are the finest people that the world has ever known? And this group's brought up Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. Mother Teresa, those are pretty good people. Pretty good guests on your part. But what do we find? In their own books, they present themselves as sinners in need of God's grace. They were good people compared to us, but they said of themselves, both of of them wrote books, confessing that they're sinners needing God's grace. How about the song, Amazing Grace? I think it might have been rewritten by some of these pro athletes. And if they was, this is the way they'd sing it. When we've been there 10,000 years, 
We've no less days to sing our praise and boast of what we've done. Doesn't go that way, does it? No. And we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less time to sing God's praise, right? And what He's done. So our salvation is not a reward for good behavior. It is a display of God's love for us. A display of God's love for us. I'll close with this, one of my favorite uh, examples. And it really does illustrate the difference between world religions and Christianity because people struggle with the fact that Jesus said, there's only one way through me, right? John 14, Acts 4, only one way. And I know people struggle with that. But, but here's the deal. Here's the story. A man fell into a dark, dirty, slimy pit. He was sinking, and he couldn't get out. So Confucius came along, great Chinese philosopher, Chinese religious philosopher. He came along. He saw the man in the pit and he said, well, you poor fellow, if you had listened to me, you never would have gotten in the pit. And he walked off. Then a Jewish guy came along and said, if you'd kept the law, this would never have happened. You'd have stayed on the path. And he walked on. Then the Buddhist came. Buddha showed up. And he saw the man in the pit, and he says, Well, you poor guy, if you'll come on out of there, I'll help you. <laughs> Finally, Jesus Christ came, and he saw the man and said, You poor guy, and he jumped into the pit with him and lifted him out. That's it. The grace of God. What we couldn't do, God's done for us. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us in every way. Thank you for your word and how powerful it is. And I pray, Lord, that from this point on, it would be all about you and any boasting we do, any thoughts we have, would be about you and living for you and thanking you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs>